वेलकम टू सिंटॉक द सिंटॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द लीशेस वी वेयर विल थिंक अबाउट द डीप इनविजिबल फैक्टर्स दैट कंस्ट्रेन आर स्पीशीज व्हेन डू वी इवॉल्व हाउ फ्री आर आर चॉइसेस व्हाट कैन वी डू एंड नॉट डू व्हाट कैन वी नो एंड नॉट नो when is mobility restricted how does a body influence a psychology does culture modify a biology did work create leisure is the body constrained and the mind unconstrained did thumb opposability make us more reflective is nomadism now a form of resistance against capitalism has a core self remain unchanged through evolution is the mind brain independent and what is the long term future of the constraints that leash our species we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today dr avishek ray He is interested in questions of mobility from a literary and cultural studies viewpoint. He is from NIT in Silchar. Dr. Monideepa Sen, she teaches philosophy in JNU New Delhi. Her areas of interest are philosophy of language and philosophy of mind. And Dr. Subhash Walimbe, he is an anthropologist, come archaeologist. He works on human bones excavated from archaeological sites. He is from Deccan College in Pune. So, uh, Walimbe, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, maybe going back to that period of time when we went from being nomads to somewhat settled species. What exactly happened? What do you think led to it? Um, and to the extent possible, and I don't know whether it is. is it possible to make a distinction between us as bodies and us as you know reflective thinking being or people uh, what was that interplay uh, give us a peek into it and then we'll see what comes out of it and connect up the other two people who are here let me start with the well hypothesis what makes us human hmm the first thing primary important very important thing is we have a bipedal gait we stand on two we don't use our forearms for in for the locomotion purpose uh-huh. now hands are free and our thumb is opposable in the sense we can touch all other fingers with thumb uh-huh. so these two things make us very distinct from other animals uh when you are standing on two not using your hands for locomotive duties you can manipulate objects of your nature objects of nature like stones or sticks either to protect yourself first thing and to get food you want but so ma- ma- many how... other primates are also able to stand on the two feet no they are not habitual walkers that's the true. biped gait that we have we call it biped striding gait right. actually when you are taking a step you actually balance yourself only on one support that right. is striding gait this is very important which no other species has you are standing on two your body is uh, hairless more or less hairless body 
Right. As compared with the other non-human primates. We have sweat glands. We have a highly, very highly evolved brain. Most of which develops during your early childhood. Did the brain become larger when we stood on our two feet? Yeah. First, we learned to stand on two. And then evolution of brain started. When this is a reason, first thing is you stand on two and then you are you become wiser. So there are two different notions. First you are biped ape and then you are wiser biped ape. So this is scientifically we name a human and, species. And, and, and when a paleoanthropologist like you uses the word wiser, huh. what, what do you mean? Wiser in the sense our brain is... Uh, See, brain and mind, these are two different things. We'll Our ask brains, Monidipa that in a yeah, while. But yeah. Yeah. So when yeah. brain is a, you have a larger brain, we have more complex brain, which gives you sufficient power to, sufficient impulses to speak. So you develop speech, mm-hmm. language. I don't know what kind of language our forefathers were using, but they were able to speak, they were able to communicate. It wasn't a sign language. But it is established that language as it is currently known, not the specific languages, but language as it is currently yeah. known, evolved after we stood on our two feet, after we became bipedal. Yeah, sometime around two, around two million years so, when we were, we call it homo erectus stage. Right. So we are at homo erectus stage, we were walking on two, we had slightly larger brain than our forefathers. We had hairless skin with ample sweat glands. Then we were, we had, because of our brain was powerful, smart enough, we were smart enough, so we could domesticate fire. Uh We had control over fire. Uh At that point of time, we did something, what you call a real milestone in our human evolution history. We developed some kind of camp basis. Camp base. So camp we settled base, down. Camp base. So there was some kind of family structure. Early societies. Yeah, early societies. So we are staying at one place. Males were probably going for hunting. Females were going for gathering in the forest or something. And we call it deliberate postponement of food. So our earlier forefathers, they were they used to eat wherever they got food. Right. Now these homo erectus, these guys, they were bringing at least some component of food back home because they knew there is someone to care for, some young ones or old people or pregnant nursing mothers. So they should also be equally fed. So this is what happened, you know. You are bringing meat from outside and the old people or the ladies that are staying at the home base, they are collecting vegetarian or forest. So this is for mutual benefit. It developed some kind of attachment, personal attachment. So this kind of thing really helped us to improve our culture. Our brain was simultaneously growing. And this is all while we are homo sapiens. No, we were homo erectus then. Okay, this is all as homo erectus. So gradually we developed, our brain still got bigger, more complex and more complex. This is how our tool technology evolved. So we could come out of Africa totally different kind of settings. We could adjust ourselves neatly because there was some kind of labor division. There was some kind of, well, because of the sweat gland substance or developed brain because of, uh, well, wider foot range. They could cope up with altogether different kind of eco settings. So this is how we spread all over. A cultural, major cultural change of that magnitude came when we shifted ourselves from the nomadic hunting gathering lifestyle to settle agricultural lifestyle. This happened in our recent history. Somewhere around, uh, if you are talking about India, somewhere around 2000 years before 
Christ. About 4,000 years back from today. Yeah, 4,000 years. 4,000 maybe. 5,000 right. years. Around that time. So, these cellular samples which we, I have... Are we homo sapiens now? We are homo sapiens. So, modern homo sapiens. That's a relief. Yeah. So, we are Anatomically, we call it, call it anatomically modern homo sapiens. Excellent. A-M-H-S. Excellent. So, it's a technical word. Excellent. So, we are now homo sapiens. We are... No, there are different cultural phases. We have Mesolithic hunter-gatherers. The skeletal sample I'm talking about, we have Mesolithic hunter-gatherers. We have pastoral communities. We call them Neolithic. Early farmers, we call them Chalcolithic. Then we have urbanized Harappan settlements, Harappa, Mohenjo-Daro. These cities, you must be knowing. Then we have trade people like megalithic trade people. They are Iron Age, Iron Age uh, workers. Then we have medieval societies, early historic societies. and that kind of thing so this change was a really dramatic change for ourselves our cultural history a major cultural leap would you say that you you used you made a reference to standing on our two feet and us becoming wiser hmm. would you say something similar about the thumb possibility uh, or that has more to do with some two men over came before we because where our forefathers now australopithecines and before that we were staying on tree anatomically we are designed for arboreal way of life that means we are supposed to be living on trees yes. structurally we are designed to stay in trees Yes, because of probably because of overpopulation in the tree, there are monkeys, apes to which we are to compete. We were very small sized as compared with other monkeys and not very efficient. So we are by force, not by choice, we came on disintegral ground because the food which was available on ground was inaccessible for monkeys. Right. So this change was not by choice; it was by. I mean, compulsory. We were made to descend on ground. So similarly, this change from hunting gathering to agricultural lifestyle is not by choice. Interesting. Population increased beyond a certain limit, and it was going beyond the carrying capacity of the land. And just so that one is able to visualize this, Walimbe, uh, in the in the early days, how large were these societies? Were they like fifty people, hundred people living together? When you say these campsites, uh, uh, campsites maybe few dozens. A few dozen. Yeah, maybe a dozen or so. Few so dozens, a few families maybe. together. Yeah. We are talking about the earlier populations, our ancestors. Now, in the Mesolithic civilization, the small villages, maybe hundred souls, five hundred souls, and all that. Chalcolithic villages are slightly bigger. Nomadic uh, hunting gathering villages, Mesolithic villages, they are small, still smaller. But Chalcolithic, uh, and it keeps getting large. bigger from there. Yeah, on. fairly large, some eight hundred thousand, even maybe more than thousand people at one place. So, so interesting. Yeah. Monadipa, what does what do some of these things mean to you? What does what is the interplay now as a philosophy person? Clearly, you think of things in in very metaphysical terms, um, without the body and sweat glands and things of that nature. Um, what is this interplay between the body and mind, and where does the brain figure in all this? Where's physiology? Where's biology in in some of this? Where would you come at it? Yeah, very interesting. While I was listening to uh, Professor Walambe, it came to my mind that there are two uh, notions that became very important for philosophers in order to understand human beings, and in a way to distinguish human beings from other animals. And these two notions are: one is rationality. and the other is sociality mm-hmm. you know and uh, the way uh, we understand rationality and understand sociality is closely connected with 
the working of the brain on the one hand, and on the other hand, coming together in order to survive. Yeah. So, so this idea of reason and sociality, these, though they may appear to be extremely uh, metaphysical notions and rather idealistic in nature, they have a very strong grounding in our bodily being, actually. Mm-hmm our embodied existence Mm -hmm. in this world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in that sense, I see certain connections that between the way Professor Walambe has explained uh, the notion of what it is to be a human with the sum of the philosophical ideas that emerged in particularly in Greek philosophy. Uh, Though later on, as philosophy progresses, uh, philosophers more and more concerns themselves with the life of the mind, as it were. were. When when does the mind split out as the separate uh, uh, entity, object of inquiry? It's very difficult to see when exactly mind uh, splits away from the body. It has always been there at the background that uh, as minded being, Mm -hmm. uh, we can do many things which an embodied being cannot do. Our thinking capacities, uh, as one may say, is unconstrained, while our embodied capacities are constrained. Mm -hmm. So this idea that there is something in us which is not bound by our surroundings, has always fascinated philosophers. Which can wander away in space and time. Yes, exactly. And think hypothetical things. Yes, exactly. And it is that that they want to capture uh, through various philosophical positions, theories, And therefore, there is this, as we see, that uh, there is a split that takes place between the, you know, mind and the body. And the mind seems to take an upper hand over the body. Momentarily, would would you say that that stands today? I wouldn't say that that stands today anymore, even in philosophy, because embodiment is such a reality for us that we cannot think of the self without a body anymore. But still, even within that embodied notion of the self, can we find a core notion of self which can uh, transcend, as it were, our embodied existence? That is being asked again and again. Sometimes the answer is is positive. Sometimes it's negative. You know, in philosophy, you can never have a categorical never... answer yeah. to any of the questions. And to file it away. You yeah. Never have that. So that's how I would put it, that this question remains an open question, even today for philosophers, even when philosophers more or less agree today that 
embodiment is something which we as humans cannot really deny. So what is this core self? Uh, you know, one way of looking at the core minimal notion of the self is the idea of I. Mm -hmm. So as soon as we experience the world, we also at the same time in our experience of the world, experience we, ourselves, we, we see ourselves as the I. I am the one who is experiencing. So as soon as that I-ness or mindness of experience comes in, you have a minimal notion of the self which emerges, which in a way, uh, you know, also gives us a clue that there is a difference between the I and the other. Yeah. Though they may be closely interconnected with, the, with each other, they're not the same. So even a child, when he or she is so integrally interconnected with the mother, there is a, you know, otherness that arises. Arises, yeah. You know, without which it is impossible for the child to actually survive. Would you call it some kind of an awareness of intentionality? Some kind of an awareness that it's... it's me or I, which is grasping the world uh, with my mind, the birth of the subject. Yes, you know, uh, you can say that it is a kind of uh, uh, very um, minimal notion of intentionality also, because it's not that we are always aware of the fact that we are grasping something different. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, but it's true that there is a relationality. There is a relational existence that we, you know, find ourselves in. And that relationality, in a way, uh, points towards intentionality. Walimbe, is there any way to say when the I emerges or arises? I, the I-ness or the minus or the meanness that I know these are philosophical notions, yeah. but are we... Yeah, are be we before I come to your question, I yes. want to compliment Madam for really giving nice insight of... Uh, <laughs> I tell you, when we think of evolution, no, the non-human primates, we talk only about the physical or biology, in biological concepts of the bodily features. Right. When you come to human, no, it's only not only biology, it's the cultural psychological, mental, behavioral pattern, they are also to be considered because here, when you evolve yourself culturally, then your culture controls your biology and your biology controls your evolution. Biology controls your culture. So this is mutually dependent on each other. The size of brains, size of complexity, your thinking capacity, etc., etc. How they develop. So all these things, when I come to your question, when this I emerge, what I think is, in mind, there is always a fear when you talk about in terms of, well, when you classic, uh, well, describe the word evolution. To me, you know, evolution is a race. Race for success. Race for survival. Between all species. Hmm? Amongst all in, species. In, amongst all species. It's like a when complex human, dynamic. When it, when it comes to human, no, if you want to be successful in evolution ladder, no, first thing is you should be able to protect yourself from the predation pressure. You should get food of your choice without spending much of your energy. You should be able to reproduce more and you should be distribute 
on the larger geographical area. So for everything, you need some kind of competitive advantage. Yeah. So even if you have 1% of competitive advantage, then you can supersede the other's competitive species. And you've spoken so about that one you. So that competitive advantage, there the word I comes. You have to have something extra which nobody else has. Now, there is a fear, always some kind of fear. The madam, she will uh, probably support me. There is always a constant fear, what will happen to me if I do this thing? So the notion of to foresee a thing, the effect of what you are doing, you are forcing it. So that is a characteristic of human development. Character, well, mental development. Being able to imagine, being able to hypothesize. Uh, yeah. So if a small creature also, if he will guess the idea that he is going to uh, some kind of threat to his life, then he will withdraw. That creature will withdraw. We can foresee that there is going to be some danger for me. So I will prepare myself not to go in that direction. So you, you, you so there like comes, a way of saying that our foreknowledge. Is, yeah, foreknowledge of anything. Is, is, and most of, most important is the life. To your life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to your life. What is I for you? Uh, well, I'll come to that later. So I might have a few uh, follow-up responses to some of the stuff that is being discussed. I mean, the one that Professor Walimbe just now mentioned, to be able to foresee the consequences of something. I'm not a trained scientist, by the way. I mean, the moment you spoke, it occurred at the back of my mind. But isn't it that like a response to the Pavlovian experiment? Even the dog would be able to... Uh, uh, foresee some sort of a consequence. The whole, the basic principles of the Pavlovian experiments. We can but foresee, but that's we... for repetitive actions. When the stimulus has been the same again and again, and the response has been the same and again. But for novel situations or things which are like combinatorially like different, predictive. it doesn't work. I see. Um, I see. I see what you mean. Yeah. Have you thought of this I question? I mean, I'll answer. Not in terms of a, like a philosophical openness. I would say the I thing doesn't emerge before Descartes in philosophy. Like uh, it's a very modern thing. The whole idea of the mind-body split, some of which Monidepa has just now began. I mean, uh, I mean, you just pointed that uh, it's probably implausible to think of an I without the body. Uh, but if you really go back into the time, some of the Buddhist philosophers did aim to think for, you know, self without a body. Avicenna's experiment, for example. So, I mean, uh, I think it's not until modernity you have this very Descartesian split of the mind-body thing from where the question of I emerges. That's number one. And the other thing that uh, strikes me very offhand uh, is even uh, to pose the question what is uh, the core self is a bit of a problematic in the sense that we are trying to reduce the self into X, Y, Z, whatever that is. Even in order to try to find an answer for this is a reductionist approach in, in, in some sense. I mean, yeah. I could probably say the I is a conglomeration of carbon. Let's see, everything is carbon in that sense. Yeah. So, I think that, yeah, that is, the question is that, is the I an emergent phenomena? Or is the I somehow the most atomized, reduced, reductive component on, on top of which the whole of whole of this thing is built? Agree, disagree? 
or a conglomeration of experiences uh, and what is i monidipa i'm sure this is like a <laughs> you need about 5 years to think about this yeah well there are so many ways in which uh, let me start by uh, you know taking clue from what obhishek was saying sure. as he mentions descartes i think it is important for us to reflect upon what obhishek just mentioned and sure. he said that the mind body divide uh, really emerges with descartes uh, to that i would say yes and no actually mm-hmm. it's true that descartes actually made this evident to the philosophers that i think proceeds all our knowledge okay we have to have i think in order for even to exist yeah know? i think means that i mm-hmm. exist or i exist means that i think yeah so i as a thinking being certainly emerges as distinct from the body with descartes i as a thinking being but the idea of the self has i think has always been there as distinct from the body in some form or the other so what was it the, if not a thinking being it was it just existed what was it if it before descartes well you know a self which can transcend body mm-hmm. mm. soul for example uh, think soul, of classical indian philosophy the idea of soul mm. for example which can transcend various as uh, you know uh, once i had a discussion with you and i was uh, you know reflecting upon some of the classical Uh, philosophies whether it is in the greek tradition or in the indian tradition know thyself has been the uh, you know the slogan for philosophers right so self knowledge the true what could be the true nature of the self hmm. self is not the body self is not just experiences self is not you know the mind or the brain maybe etc yeah. etc et so what could be the self as uh, obhishek pointed out that there are philosophers of course like hume in uh, in western philosophy modern western philosophy and maybe buddhists in traditional um, in classical a uh, broadly indian philosophy they thought that self can be understood in and through experiences hmm. specific experiences there is nothing over and above experiences which constitute the self okay hmm. but there are other philosophers who um, do think that the soul continues to exist even without there being any particular experience that it is having okay at this point of time so uh, as i was uh, which, which telling which means that the soul can be disembodied it means that the soul can be disembodied certainly and that's it what means the belief it, is in the classical hindu canon i mean you, we do not have to yeah. necessarily believe in that but that's that that's what the canon says yeah what is this whole idea of nomadism mobility 
uh, when we take it to that realm, the one that Walimbe was referring to, Abhishek, where you know we went from being hunter gatherers uh, or finding a way about looking for basic things like food to being somewhat pastoral and then settling down. Now, obviously, you've thought of your mobility questions in a more recent contemporary kind Modern of context. Times. But the, are, there, are there parallels there? What what is what is that somewhat long term transition to you as a as a literary theorist, cultural theorist, as as a as a person who thought of these questions in a very different context and time? Well, to me, mobility is very instinctual to human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we go back to where the episode started from what makes us necessarily human. I think uh, mobility for the sake of fun, for the sake of leisure and a diverse range of reasons. I mean, of course, if you look into some of the other animals, uh, they are mobile for a purpose, either gathering food, either for whatever that is, as opposed to we have found uh, so many different uh, reasons for mobility uh, not necessarily in the rationalistic sense of approach. We are mobile for a number of other reasons. So in that sense, I believe that mobility is very instinctual uh, for why uh, we are human to begin with. And in that sense, and then, when, as you said, like I work more on the modern stuff. Uh, so there has been a lot of uh, institutional thrust on sedentarization. Like when I say institutional, I mean... Uh, government bodies not not in the like government not in the sense of uh, the state government or the national sure. or the federal government but i mean a, any a, forms any, any of governing mechanism governmentality in that sense like any any institution that wants to socialize and govern you there has been a social rules and regulations social rules and that and has to do with uh, notions the, of surplus storage protection uh, what do you what do you think are and the drivers? And also, like, there's some very interesting work by uh, Jem Scott, political scientist, the art of not being governed and stuff like that. Where he right. talks about the, go to the whole hills. idea of enumeration. Yeah, the Zomia. I mean, the North East. Zomia. Go to the hills. Yeah, when, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. where you come from. Yeah, that's where I come from. <laughs> so yeah, the whole idea of uh, enumerability, uh, the census, and also the modern technologies of. Uh, looking at demographics, the for example, map makings and sensors and a bunch of other stuff. All, these are all intellectual technologies of governance. And if you are nomadic, that makes it difficult to govern. You're so difficult to pin down. Difficult to pin down. You're difficult uh, to tax. Difficult to tax. And also the question of knowability. Uh, I don't know you. And therefore, I mean, if you look at some of the uh, colonial uh, legislations around uh, stuff like mobility, I mean, the whole quote unquote, the scientific correlation that the colonial uh, government wanted to establish between nomadicity and criminality, for example, look at the criminal tribes. Act. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you are mobile without a permanent address, I mean, that's what the colonial uh, government wanted to believe. Then you're uh, not a citizen and therefore almost not human. Almost. Not only that, on top of that, you were likely to be criminal. Yeah. If you if you are mobile, uh, in a way that I do not understand, in a way that I do not make sense of your mobility, then I assume you to be a criminal. That's that's the, and and then they deployed all kind of. Uh, I mean, Professor Walimbe will be able to comment more on this. They all so the kind arrival... of used quasi scientific techniques like uh, what used to be called craniology and uh, eugenics and all of that to actually evidentially prove that there's a scientific correlation between mobility and criminality. If I am to answer this question, well, I won't be able to answer fully, I mean, full full justice to your question. But uh, see, with agricultural transition, 
what came is the concept of food storability. Yeah. You are not, every day you are not going for in search of food. There are resources. Hmm? Yeah, somebody stands guard to them and yeah. it's meant for somebody. Yeah. So there here you are um, cultivating food for the entire year. There is something at at your at your home every day, evening. There is no need to worry yeah. about what you are insurance stock. Yeah. So there is some kind of food assurance. But with this storage economy, we call it, the concept of rich and poor came. Going back to the question of I, the origin of word I, before this concept came, I think the word I is need to be associated with fear of to life. With the agricultural transition, the concept of I should go for the greed for superiority, greed for wealth. It is not only for fear. That's because hierarchical societies were taking shape. Exactly. And exactly. They because were complex. Here, because uh, in agricultural economy, you can accumulate wealth. That wasn't there earlier. So earlier notion of I was only for fear to your life, probably. But now here word I is to be associated with your greed. I think that is a very, uh, well, no science can evaluate the exact how it went, how it, uh, I mean, quantify the component of fear and component of greed. But something happened during the agriculture transition. Whether it was a healthy uh, transition or not, I mean, we and as uh, as I said earlier, no, it is. It wasn't by choice. We were forced to adopt agriculture because of overpopulation. We wanted to increase carrying capacity of the land. That's why we went for pastoralism and agriculture. But the concept of rich and poor came, and this is how the whole whatever uh, the social imbalance started with that, and also with it the concept of leisure. So the idea of leisure follows the idea of work. Work. Interesting. Would you say that this is the, the very fact that we settled down led to somewhat hierarchical societies, rigid structures that leads to our spatial behavior, our mobility itself getting normed? And social, social norms and social norms in terms of the spatial organization. If you want someone in your space or vice versa, if you have to turn somebody out from your space, you do not necessarily have to be coercive. You could design your space in a certain way so that you either fit in or not fit in. Isn't so, this linked to the whole idea of property? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. That's, so, what, that's what I was saying. So in a way, it's agreed, no? Property mm. and also, the, if you look at the during the, the times of the English monarchy, the whole idea of the spaced property, like enclosure acts, at that point of time, they would spell with an I instead of E. Mm -hmm. But basically, that has got to the whole idea of enclosure. So you, and the whole notion to, of to, encroachment. To, to what end? Enclosures were for what? The that stranger cannot uh, trod into your into your property. So the whole idea of this is my property uh, to be distinguished from yours, and also uh, this has also implications for uh, the. If you remember the Black Plague uh, at that point of time, like feudal serfs were fleeing from one shire to another. So the fear was they'll treat into your property number one and number two. Also, this uh, fleeing masterless men. Of course, there's a gender angle to it. Uh, these were these mobile people were, uh, in that sense, uh, an object of anxiety. 
do we get diseases with settling down do we get different kinds of, course, of diseases of course, with settling no. down when you are settled now you can't afford to be full time farmer you can't afford to be full time pastoral you have to have keep some cattle smaller or bigger animals with you when you are going for agriculture so this close vicinity to this agricultural well animal domesticated animals there are many animal born pathogens and they directly affect you your food composition changes earlier you are consuming more protein now you are going for more carbohydrate food at least in the incipient stages of agriculture so you have nutritional stress you have pathological stress so all these things you can see on bone actually there are many types of diseases you can read on bone and one very interesting thing is um, as i said no with a surplus economy craft specialization started and with the diseases which our forefathers suffered from the medical science also evolved right. at a faster rate and doctors really whatever i mean success we achieved in our ayurveda or other medical sciences is because of the sufferings of our forefathers medical research is not a part time job you don't do medical research because there is nothing else for you to do <laughs> uh, you have to taste your medicine you need some patient to taste your medicine what you are inventing and these are the uh, they were used as a laboratory specimens whatever i mean their sacrifice we are getting benefited out of it this is how i look at when i when i look at a deceased bone or ancestor of for for 300 or say 500 or 1000 year old our forefather i respect that bone because because of the diseases that was um, that person poor fellow was suffering from we are indirectly benefited out of it yeah one of the people when we think of um uh, um uh, the world on this evolutionary scale um do you think and because of some of the changes that we've spoken about the way we move the changes especially the the way going from being itinerant to settling down and so on do you think it's changed the way in in deeper ways of how we acquire knowledge of how of how we conceive of the world certainly it has um you know i would like to sort of uh, after hearing obhishek and professor malambi i was thinking of how to relate this idea of mobility mm-hmm. along with this idea of settlement yeah idea of uh, spaces which either incorporates you or excludes you, you know excludes you i was thinking how i can relate to some of the issues that may arise with uh, uh, regard to the notion of the self and uh, you know one thing that is very interesting is that time and space both these notions play extremely important role in understanding the self the space as well uh, space as well in what way in the sense that uh, you know uh, always when we are talking about the self and the other vis-a-vis the self there is a distancing that takes place okay and that distancing is not just a temporal distancing it's a spatial distancing yeah okay so that spatial distancing is very important in order to grasp the idea of the self and uh, no doubt about the fact that time plays an extremely important role in in understanding the notion of the self the emergence of the self to different levels of self consciousness uh, 
uh, and also the idea that there may be a, a, a kind of a mobility of thinking. Mobility of thinking. Thinking. Not just, you know, bodily mobility. Not just uh, my taking, going from one place to another. Mm -hmm. But mobility of thought is something which is very important for philosophers. That how do, at various points of time, certain thinking processes emerge? What is the historical, sociological, uh, as well as philosophical conditions which, you know, lead to somebody like Descartes saying that I think therefore I am is the starting point of philosophy. Modern philosophy. Modern philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> of course, he thought it is the starting point of philosophy, but for us it is the starting point of more modern philosophy. Hmm. Yeah. So, so in order to understand any philosopher in this historical context, you need to see the mobility of thought that has taken place over a period of time, how a concept actually undergoes change. You mean in the genealogical sense? In the genealogical sense. This idea of the self itself has undergone so much of change in the history of philosophy. Charles Taylor has a very important book on this. Well, and what's the core argument there? It's very difficult to really summarize Sum the core argument at, of at, a book, which is this, you know, such a thick book. He's just <laughs> tracing the history of the notion of the self, how a from, you know, from uh, the Greeks or maybe the pre-Greek tradition, pre-Socratic tradition to the contemporary times, how the notion of the self has you know, gone yeah. through an evolution Talk about with these. certain, you know, breaks, as it were, in between, which are the uh, turning points in the discussion. So if Descartes may, is such a turning point. If I may interject, Rajat, he is basically saying the self is fragmentary and pointing to the futility of what we are doing. <laughs> <laughs> what about the idea of time? So in, in, in the temporality of the self... Does the self exist in the present, at the moment, mm -hmm. or where, or is there is there the future in it somehow? Mm -hmm. Is the past in there somehow? Mm -hmm. What is it? No, I understand it's not a, it's not an accounting question. So I'm sure the other response is going yeah. to be open ended. Uh, this is again a very interesting and very uh, difficult question to deal with, um, and again um, I will you know, give you two alternative positions, as it were. One is that uh, when we talk about uh, the self, we have to look at the self in its presence. In its presence. Here and now. The reality of the self is in its presence. Yeah. We don't know what is going to happen next moment. Yeah. So it is this particular moment which is the reality. And in each moment, we have to be responsible for what we are doing precisely because we don't know what is coming in future. 
Okay. This is one way. So the reality of the self is temporarily determined. But you still incorporate your map of the future into your actions. Yeah, but the future is never uh, certain. Yes. Isn't it? Yes. So you can think of the future, but the future is not a reality. That's true. What is real is this moment. Is the Mm. past a reality? Past also is not real. Because how the past has been, you actually don't know. And your memory can be fickle or false. Yes. But there are other philosophers who take a more uh, holistic view of the idea and would say that the present is constituted by the past as well as the future. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you know what your past has been or whether or not you know what is the future is going to be. Even then. Even then, your presence is constituted of a past and a look, looking forward towards a future. In what way? In a bodily kind of way? Mm-hmm. Or this way you're talking about the self, right? Yes, uh, the self. Uh, like what kind of projections you, uh, you, you, you have for your future. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what would you like to do? What would uh, to to put it very simply? What are your wants for the future? Yeah. Mm. That does constitute your present self. That the, the temporary moment how self. you actually uh, look at yourself today, here and now. Mm. And that has been uh, a kind of a idea that has also been prevalent in uh, philosophy. Um, It's known as the narrative self, Mm -hmm. self as a narration, narration which binds the past with the present to the future. You find it in uh, philosophers like Paul Ricoeur, Alistair McIntyre and many others. And they would say that this idea of the momentary self doesn't make sense because how our past and our future actually uh, constitute the presence. Where do you stand on this as Munideepa? (laughs) Uh, You know, if you ask me where I stand, I would say that, you know, uh, I would like to look at the self in a very, uh, in a in a slightly different way. I don't want to either say that the self is a purely narrative identity mm-hmm. or a narrative construct, nor do I want to say that the self is momentarily present. What I want to look at the self, and I think, Um, that is what attracts me most about the self or the I is that uh, our selves are led. Hmm. Okay. There is no end to this layering of the self. So there is a momentary self, here and now self, but this here and now self is not the the reality of the self. Hmm alone. So just as you can, you know, peel, keep on peeling uh, 
you know, uh, an onion to get at the core, the the self is constituted by many layers. So for you, the self is a process? It is a process. To, as opposed to a product but, of some But kind. there may be a core, core element to that process. Hmm. I'm not saying that I reduce the whole of the self to that core element. Sure. No, not at all. The core element is part of the layering of the self. That's how I would look at it. Where is time for you, Abhishek? Well, let me respond to Monadepa first. There's also a bunch of philosophers like Daniel Dennett, like uh, who will ascribe to the no self view. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I think we can connect time with uh, that in the sense. I mean, the fragmentary self is tipped in time, as opposed to I mean, if we also revisit some of the uh, Buddhist arguments, like the Buddhist philosophers used to dismantle the notion of the self, can also be transposed. So to there is the, no I. There's no I to begin with, and uh, people like uh, Daniel Dennett. So of course, I, that's a reductionist view. Like, not that I necessarily believe in that, but it's. Uh, Effective, you know, to put that on record since we are discussing sure. the different uh, fragmented layers of the self. I mean, people might also argue that uh, there's no mind or body to begin with. And there's nothing like, again, like a very grossly empirical view. I mean, <laughs> any, anything that's not on your, uh, beyond the electromagnetic waves that your brain generates, there's nothing beyond that. I mean, that's again, like yeah. reducing everything to carbon. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there are a bunch of people who... Who do that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and Gilbert Ryle has a very interesting term for that on his book on the mind. He calls this nothing buttery. Like, you're reducing something, nothing but this. <laughs> this is nothing but this. So, he calls this nothing buttery. Uh, so, there's a very problematic approach in that you reduce, uh, like, a complex phenomena into, like, nothing but, like, a... The core thing. So I'm, I'm trying to problematize the whole business of getting to the core. That is itself very problematic to begin with. You made a point a while ago, Abhishek, and I want to go back to that if you're okay, that being mobile yes. is somehow very fundamental. These are my words. You didn't use this word, to being human. Why do you say so? Like why, what makes you believe that that statement is correct? I'll go back to Professor because Wallenbe's Because, because over, but there are many other reasons and exigencies and so on, but we have for the last 10,000 years, how many years, been settled and we are probably making our own structures. When we say we, I just mean us as all of us, uh, making our structures more rigid, more compact, more normed, more regulated and so on. So this is somehow something that is at work. Uh, now it's all human beings who are doing it. Now, so I'm just trying to reconcile this notion and the somehow very definite arc to this statement that you made, which I just referred to about being freely mobile. Let's use the word free and choice and all that in to being human. So how, how would you reconcile the two? And of course, part of my answer is embedded in what Professor Walimbe just said. I mean, if we recall the reasons that we are sedentarized is not because, I mean, that's not a natural thing to begin with. There were fight over competitive resources mm. and stuff like that. So we are sedentary for reasons that are not natural. So uh, We are 
But we have been non-natural for a very long time. Right, right, right. But that, that still doesn't <laughs> so that, naturalize it. <laughs> so then, but then, there's the definition of natural wrong or some, you, you know what I mean. Because if you've been a certain way for a bulk of, how long have we been homo sapiens? Homo sapiens? Yes. Last 200,000 years. And if we've been, how long have we been sedentary? <laughs> Just 10,000 years before, is it? So, so that so, itself points so, to so, like okay, so just five percent of the time. Yeah, one yeah. question so going to wait for another five thousand years. <laughs> one one question we always debate. One question we always debate, uh, and probably Madam will help you solving the, my problem is whether we were happier being a nomad. Or we are happier being settled. I think that question has to go to Abhishek. I, I don't know. But any of that's them. precisely my question. Absolutely. Yeah. I am not the right person. That's precisely my question. Because <laughs> of somehow being because mobile. The, this question, some of us associated with origin of art. Origin of art. Art. Art is expression of your mind. I mean, that is what I mean. I, I feel so. Sure. Yeah. So, so you're, you're let your origin... mind wander where it has to. But please keep your body where it is. Roughly. Yeah. Please write your poems, but be in your inscribed eye with an eye territory. So, uh, I mean, whether we are happier being a nomad, I mean, I don't know. I don't I'm, know I'm either. You're you happier, but you die at the age of 16 because somebody yeah. comes and kills you. No, so. No, life was more comfortable in after the initiation of agriculture. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there are craftsmen which made us our life easier. There was some kind of food assurance. Yeah, so then but, the uh, question for... But not always, you know, it goes with, uh, as I said, you no. Know, in evolution, there are some other factors also you have to take into account, emotional and psychological factors. The Because of no, the sir. diseases, some... you know, there is always some kind of threat, you no. Know. Earlier threat was some predator will come and eat you. Now the predator... You've created one of, kind of threat for another. Yeah, so, yeah, some other kind of threat. And there is always a fear of what is going to be next. Where are you on this, hmm. Abhishek? I think, I'll, I'll, I'll play I, I the think devil's the, advocate and complicate the question further. I mean, we are assuming here that as human beings, we always want to be happy. That is our fundamental presumption here. That might not be the case. No, but I think so far, the only fundamental, fundamental um, human need that you articulated is one of being mobile. Is that all right? Correct. So far, I mean, of course... You've been speaking for just a few minutes. So if that is fundamental, how come we are, you know, you know, the same question. Like, what? how do you reconcile that? What is happening? Or are we going through a phase where we're somehow acting against our own deep no, wishes? No, there's there's and, no contradiction here in the sense, like, we are, we are settled. If you go by the macro picture, we are all settled. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm settled in Silchar, and from Silchar, I'm being uh, mobile in order to be here. Right. So if you, uh, I'm, I'm trying to uh, get into the core of Deleuze and Guattari's uh, right. thing on nomadology and territorial, uh, deterritorialization de and stuff like that. But right. the, the, the whole core argument here being uh, we are settled or we are sedentarized, let me put it that way. And mm -hmm. we all have an uh, address, all of us in, mm -hmm. in the room. But then we are also, uh, in terms of the kind of business that we do, we are all also highly mobile people. We go to academic conferences, we go to visit our friends and folks, but then we still have an address. I mean, you might be you might be staying away from address depending on what business you are on. Point that I'm driving home is there's no apparent contradiction between 
me being sedentarized and you can me, have an address and be mobile and be mobile and have the ability to be mobile correct, if you want correct, to be. correct so would you say that as human societies by and large the way things have been progressing for the last several centuries that's how things have been and then when you do not have a contradiction between them only then would you have certain norms and regulations and certain governance that aim to teach you what is good mobility and what is bad mobility so there are certain ways of mobility if i were to use in order to travel from silchar to mumbai only that would be permissible and another set would be not uh, so i i think that and the way the world stands today and i'm not trying to reduce it to like some some factual tic tac toe would you would you say that on the axis of mobility we are constrained or we are by and large free as people we are apparently free but then we are also constrained and there's no apparent contradiction into that what i'm hmm. saying is i'm free to move from silchar to mumbai hmm. but for example if i were to walk i would be taken for a lunatic so that is the point i'm trying to make i'm not necessarily unfree to travel but there are certain codes and certain norms already in place that dictates the way i should travel and that's all right i don't know <laughs> 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 because because norms are human made like we 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 all made it yeah 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 interesting are you able to appreciate this monadipa there there is no lament in what you're saying abhishek no no no, no. i think it's it's it's, it's just, just an observation it's right? an observation let's put it it's a it's hmm. a critical observation that's all I mean, not that so, I necessarily uh, have preferred to walk the point is that our freedom always comes with certain constraints they go together you, they go together that's what is being said here that uh, you know freedom is not uh, though many philosophers have talked it's about absolute. absolute freedom there is no such absolute freedom it's not even to be desired what is absolute freedom i'm not saying so, that so, i'm not saying no, that so what is but what is absolute freedom yeah. is very difficult to actually understand and experience okay and some philosophers would say some some thinkers would say that uh, freedom is something which is covetable only when you uh, experience constraints yes otherwise you know freedom doesn't make any sense so you take a compatibilist position that freedom comes with certain constraints do you think that we as human beings hmm. uh live or exist with deep constraints like that of a body the bodily facts the they live with many constraints body is one such constraint hmm. there are certain constraints that come with my having a particular body yeah hmm. uh even if i might like to climb the um, mount everest i know that at this age and with my knees i cannot do it right okay so uh body is a constraint for sure but there may be so many other constraints uh social constraints uh, economic constraints uh, um psychological constraints so there are any number of constraints that we can think of our you know our aim in life would be to exercise freedom within these constraints how can we 
still be aspire to be free given that we have these constraints. And sometimes, of course, we have to go against the constraints. I'm not saying that we always, you know, uh, embrace the constraints. Like the, certain... like the hunter-gatherers did. I think yeah. they, they were operating in a certain they, kind of yeah. world. If I look at uh, the uh, notion of mobility with Abhishek said, no? if I look at the problem from the evolutionary point of view, no? the mobility which we had earlier, no? that was for immediate gains. I need something in the evening to eat. So that was the reason. Now, today, the mobility we observe is for long-term gains. And that is essentially the evolution of your thinking well, approach. Your approach is different now. It's not for immediate goals. You are coming, going to different seminars, traveling world around. That is for your academic gain, which you don't expect tomorrow to happen. That's because we, yeah. as a human society, have generated enough surplus. Yeah. Lots of things are taken care yeah, of. Every the, route the immediate is, our route for everything goes to that age, surplus economy and all that. And also the division of labor. I know of course, yeah. It came with that. My it came with that. Yeah. Anything you name, it's a major evolutionary cultural factor. So the similar kind, well, similar innovation of that kind is technology. I mean, the present day technology. You can compare it only with the initiation of agriculture. That's a major cultural leap we had in recent years. So where is this hmm. headed, Walimbe? Hmm? Where is it headed in the next uh, 10,000 years? The next 90,000 years till we get to average it out for Abhishek. From the evolution point of view? <laughs> yes. Is there a way of being definitive about it? Like, what, what can one be somewhat one, sure about? One thing for sure, and I can guarantee you, the concept of natural selection we had some a few years back, those kind of controlling factors, natural selection, ke jo controlling factors, whatever we had now, we have changed notion of these controlling factors. We have more controlling factors which are culturally imposed on us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? I mean, if there is a natural calamity, we have culturally, we have adopted ourselves to cope up with that change. Right. If it is too too cold or too hot or we can adjust ourselves, we can make ourselves yeah, comfortable because of culture, because of technology. So naturally, uh, if we don't get wiped out by natural calamities, where we are going to evolve in another 10,000 years or say 10,000 years? Well, so your point is that in the distant past, uh, evolution was more or less the same as natural selection. Uh, well, it won't future, be natural selection, but controlling natural, culturally induced selective features, factors will be there, which will control our selection processes for everything. And gradually, there won't be any racial difference in the population. Everybody will start looking more or less same. You mean physiologically? Physiologically, yeah. And you give this, what, 90,000 years? How many years? No, no, that, that um, you can't... Um, I'm sure uh, there's a way because you... you, you it can be in, no, 10,000 years. It's a certain is very number of reproductive cycles. It's immediate future. It can be another, say, like or two like years from now. But there will be whatever differences that you see today. Differences of that magnitude won't exist after 10,000 years, after 50,000 years, or one like years. So the differentiation in different population groups, it is going to So the differentiation will reduce. So there will be some kind of racial uniformity throughout the world. Has that happened in other species? Um, like the other species which have much shorter reproductive cycles, evolution uh, cycles. Like there's the bacteria from like the, millions of years ago in 
Suriname and Greenland. Well, I, I don't have an well, appropriate answer for that because that's not my area of... Uh, sure. Well, I won't be able to tell you positively about it. Humans, we had differences because of there is some kind of endogamy. Right. Uh, endogamy is marrying within ourselves. No, those kind of really culturally induced taboos. They were spatially bound yeah. and the genetic pool also yeah. remained within so small groups. We were earlier, we were confining ourselves within a genetic framework. Now, because of this, endogamy rules no longer exist to that rigidity. So there is free mixing, free migrations everywhere. So these are, these are going to be causative factors for elimination of this racial categorization. That is one thing going to happen Very over a long period of time. Do you think about the future, Abhishek? What's going to happen? Where is this headed in the very long term? People are increasingly going to be more mobile. Uh, migration uh, for reasons uh, like natural calamity and stuff like that, like climate refugees, for example. So that's, I think, in the immediate future. That's forced migration. That's forced migration, yes. So that's going to, you know, um, double and triple. And like, so that's the future of mobility I see, like not in terms of the 90,000 year scale, but in the immediate future, yes. Any cultural implications of that? Well, there, there will be some racial uh, implication in terms of the, I mean, uh, the whole uh, idea of border thinking and who belongs to which place, those kind of questions. Those are resurfacing in the world uh, in different avatars. Uh, I mean, uh, who belongs to where and... But the, the, the idea of nation stands firm, right? As of now. Well, that's the, you know, the, uh, the sole unitary, whatever you may prefer to call it, the uh, very homogeneous conception, political conception to have uh, alterate, but the, the centrality of the nation remains very strong. Yeah. And as long as that happens, uh, there will be also this question of, you know, border thinking, where, where the nation ends, where the nation uh, begins, and then who belongs where. So lots and, of buffer zones. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, there's yeah. no other way to put the two together. And then if, you have a bunch of people, especially the, uh, the wrong kind of mobility, so to say, the wrong uh, itinerant people who do not fit into that whole nation statist scheme. Uh, how do you deal with them? You mean, I mean the Rohingyas, for example, that would be a perfect case in point. So, in a way, you mean not, the ones no one wants? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, given that you need to eventually stand on land. And there was this case in Norway, uh, like a decade back, like I read in the news that they were using these people who they do not want uh, as nuclear reactor cleaners. And of course, you can imagine they were not made aware of the kind of the job they were doing. So these people were actually employed and they were actually grateful to the state for making them employable. But in a way, in employing them, they were actually, you know. Yeah, that's just another form of racism. It's just lesser, lesser humans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So that's, I mean, there is nothing like, there is not going to be like anything like a natural selection. There is going to be a cultural selection, political selection, whatever you name it. There is not going to be natural selection in future. The role of natural selection is going to be less and less. But right? how do you reconcile that with that phrase, climate change? Isn't that like the biggest? Yeah, I agree with uh, you. I agree with you. Yeah, so yeah. that is, yeah, maybe not on the same scale as like a hailstorm or something, but it is interesting. Where are you on this? Uh, how do you see this transforming the idea of the self in the next many, 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 many years? What are the open questions for you? What comes to mind? 
difficult to actually say what kind of questions that are going to come, but one question that will be uh, coming along with the notion of the self is the question of identity. You know, hmm. How do you construct your, or how do you understand yourself uh, as identical over a period of time, given the fact that there is such a wide range of uh, possibilities that are open for you? Okay. So one question that will come up again and again vis-a-vis -vis the self is the question of identity. Hmm. Both at the personal level as well as at the social level. Collectively. Collective level. This is, I can think, one of the major issues that will come up. You see that potentially moving towards a uh, direction of greater uniformity or greater differentiation? Difficult to say. Like, for example, actually. even in this world that you outline, Abhishek, of, of, let's say, these people that nobody wants, so is it just those who nobody wants and everybody else? Or, or it's, you know what I mean? Like, is it mm -hmm. elites and non-elites? Is it imprisoned and the free? Is it that kind of a thing? Because, you know, in a way, we're discussing the notion of the prison almost. But also in this context, I think we should also acknowledge that there are people who want to be mobile uh, in order to articulate some sort of resistance. That is also like another category of people. I mean, people who are forced into mobility, that's the climate refugee kind of thing mm. that we already Yeah, but the upon. willful nomads. Correct. Who, I mean, who, uh, people who, who are uh, nomadic by choice, not necessarily they're thrown into poverty or they're the urban homeless kind of people. Now, besides a few token things here and there, you see that as being a real surge, a real... No, no, not at all. But I think uh, these this, this are stray cases. So but, then that's uh, like almost in, like an art project. It's like an aesthetic expression. Yes, as, yes, as but I think I should put that on record. Yeah. Before it's important. It's important for what yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because we often do not realize that uh, these people are mobile or the way they're mobile is not necessarily because they're uh, like the guy who would want to walk from Silchet to Mumbai is not because they cannot, reasons inflicted yeah. by poverty. I mean, that's that might be a choice uh, for uh, sure. Yeah. Gandhi, for example. Yeah. As a form yeah. of expression, as a form of as some a, yeah. expression of freedom. Yeah. 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 Where are you on this question I just asked you, Manadipa, of this identity, self mm. and identity? Mm. Now, identity, you, you quite rightly pointed out, has a sociological, political, collective imprint. You yeah. see this as getting more differentiated or more uniform? I'm just, again, trying to reconcile with at least this racial uniformity thing. Uh, which you know, I was just thinking whether racial uniformity will necessarily... Uh, imply uniformity in thinking and uniformity in action. It doesn't necessarily imply that. Yeah, it's and like diaspora. And if it doesn't, then I don't see there being, you know, the idea of uniformity emerging in at the level of thought or at the level of action. So it's very difficult to actually predict what is going to happen to the concept of identity and the concept of self. Only history can tell us. But uh, only thing that I, actually I think is uh, racial uniformity need not necessarily mean 
that there's uniformity at the level of identity identity and thought it could be the other way around i'm Actually, not trying to be predictive be other, but that also creates anxiety yeah. if i if, mm. if if i mean this racial uniformity so greater uniformity leads to a greater need anxiety about segregation mm. anxiety about segregation anxiety about differentiation anxiety yeah. about who belongs where anxiety about standing out so that leads mm. to more and more persona as opposed to fewer and fewer persona comes as a package no mm-hmm. whatever you say <laughs> there are going to be always some plus and minus interesting no thank you i think that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank so you for coming thank you thank you thank you